3: of Truth and Movies. Today, Dunkirk, once more onto the beach for Christopher Nolan's epic recounting of what happened last time we tried to withdraw from Europe without proper planning. Then, Unleash the Docks of War for City of Ghosts, the extraordinary account of citizen journalists battling the black flag. There's love for the late George Romero, father of the zombie genre, and the dead are alive in this week's film club, too, as we revisit the Powell Pressburger classic, A Matter of Life and Death. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello there, everybody, and welcome to Truth and Movies. And rarely has our deluxe studio been as crackling with excitement as it is today, with David Jenkins and Adam Woodward lined up together to deal with one of the really most important film outings that I can remember for a while.
1: Oh, yeah. Dunkirk is a film we've been anticipating for pretty much the entire year, obviously working on the magazine, and it feels like a long time coming, so... Mm.
3: All right, anticipating, salivating. Will we appreciate And We'll be talking about that very, very shortly. You can get in touch with us. Please do. The email address is truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. Of course, there's also at LWLies on Twitter or the Little White Lies page on Facebook. Tony Cowards got in touch to say, really pedantic, I know, but there are no monkeys riding horses in the Planet of the Apes films. The clue is in the apes bit in the title. Adam, that was you.
1: Tomato, tomato.
3: Well, yeah, yeah, monkeys and apes are both primates, but monkeys, of course, have tails, don't they, David? Which apes don't?
0: Well, I, I didn't know that, but
1: Did you now,
3: know
0: know that? now, yeah, I feel I'm being educated every on every day's uh, primate. a school day. Yeah, yep. I think all we right.
3: need
1: more, more simian facts on this podcast.
3: Yeah. Um, no, that's all I've got. Sorry. Oh. all right. Maybe listeners would like to write in with more ape or monkey facts. Uh, we'll certainly be hearing more from listeners about our film club this week, A Matter of Life and Death, but we're going to begin with that much-anticipated Christopher Nolan, Dunkirk. <laughs> Dunkirk, hitting cinemas worldwide this Friday, the 21st of July, starring, how do I pronounce this, is it Fionn Whitehead? Fionn Whitehead. And, and Kenneth Branagh, Mark Rylance, Tom Hardy, Killian Murphy. Oh, and Harry Styles is in it too, you might Who's not... He? I've heard about that. David, you had the pleasure of a long chat with the man behind this, Christopher Nolan, not so long ago. And there's a great quote from that in your
0: piece where he says, This isn't a war film, it's more a movie about survival. I would agree with him on that, I think. Although, obviously, it is a. uh, The context, the backdrop, the historical setting is very much a kind of military episode in the sort of early Second World War. British campaign I guess Um, what's interesting about the film or the prospect of the film when he was making it was this idea that he was gonna make a film about war which was experiential I think he often talked about it as it's a present tense movie as in you're like in there on the beach experiencing this situation alongside these people and some of the name checks that he made to other films included things like Gravity and Mad Max Fury Road. So it was very much a kind of, I want to get all the feels with this film. Right,
3: also The Thin Red Line, Terrence Malick's uh, extraordinary
0: picture, which he had had a screening of for the crew. I believe so, yeah, he did that. But I think for that film, it was more of a kind of, here's a great war film, but we don't necessarily want to right. emulate it. Although um, it.
3: It did share a, a strong impressionistic approach to the material Adam, also up on the Little White Lies website along with that Christopher Nolan interview is a tremendous uh, little video essay Mm. about Christopher Nolan's approach to time which once again is a huge part of this film
1: Yeah, um, provided by an amazing uh, video essayist called uh, Luis Azevedo also known as Beyond the Frame on YouTube he's done that for us and yeah I think the time factor here in Dunkirk is interesting because he he doesn't just tell this in a kind of very straight linear fashion you've got these three different kind of time spans which overlap in the film so early on it establishes that you're going to be spending a week on the land with Phil Whitehead and the other young privates a day uh, on the boat with uh, Mark Rylance and you spend an hour in the sky with Tom Hardy Hmm. uh, and his RAF pilot.
3: Am I the only person who really didn't get that at all when those things went up and it said the mole one week and then a bit later the sea one day
1: i I think they possibly could have made it slightly clearer Mm. but that's Um, what it
3: means anyway when you see that the start of the film which i hope you will see because you have to go and see this film um that's what he's talking about
0: in essence although it's a very people have said oh it's a very different film for christopher nolan because it's the first thing he's ever made about documented reality I mean he is a sort of fantasist, fabulist by trade but now he's got making this real movie but actually in terms of how he deals with time and this kind of almost sort of Russian doll approach right. it's the same as Interstellar when, or Inception particularly or Inception, where you've got the you've got the three different time frames mm. existing at the same time it floats this kind of weird thing out there at the beginning where it tells you one week, one day, one hour but then doesn't give you any more instruction than that. And then there's a kind of point in the film where it kind of, you, you realize what's happening. The temporal aspect just clicks and it's, it's impressive, I think. Mm.
3: Okay. Well, Adam, you've done a review uh, oh, yeah. of this Four Little White Lies, where your scores are I'm giving a little something away five anticipation, five enjoyment at the time, and only three in retrospect, which is interesting. So looking back, you felt less and less rewarded by what you have described as a little bit of a soulless
1: Yeah, I I have a very similar reaction to a lot of his films. Probably going back to like Inception was the first one where I was so blown away with it at the time in the cinema. And I think literally in the time it took me to walk to the tube station after seeing the film, it suddenly started to to nag at me and and gnaw away at me. And I, I get a similar thing with this. I think... As impressive as it is, and we should, we'll kind of talk more about this, I guess, but as a kind of technical achievement, as an exercise in craft, it is immaculate, it's unimpeachable. I do think there's something weirdly really ungratifying about it. Hmm. This is maybe straying slightly into spoiler territory, although I do mention it in my review. One of the key aspects of this film from a narrative point of view is that he doesn't actually show you the enemy. So, yes, we see Tom Hardy engaged in dogfights, and we see, or we hear, gunfire from uh, the German soldiers but you never actually see them and I think his approach is it's not a propaganda film it's not necessarily a patriotic or political film um, but it's very much on the side of the Allied troops and particularly the British soldiers and not showing the Germans I think takes something away from the human drama and emotion aspect of the film.
3: Hmm. A little bit cold you
0: felt.
1: A little bit yeah I think it's just it's very kind of clinical in the way it's executed as well. Right.
0: David? It sounds bad that we're focusing on this kind of negative aspect of it over like what I would say is like the overwhelming positive hmm. side of things. I have found with Christopher Nolan, like ahead of interviewing him, I kind of revisited a lot of his films. In fact, all of his films. And one of the interesting things I found is when I, I really didn't like The Dark Knight Rises when I originally saw it. And that's mm-hmm. I think that's a film that is generally seen as one of, the, one of his kind of weaker efforts that, that maybe he did it as a kind of... We had to finish off the trilogy i watched it again and, and really liked it the second time and and it was a almost a very different film I right think. so you think maybe adam
3: i know you're going back to see this quite soon you might appreciate this more let's accentuate the positives then you're talking about the magnificent achievement of this film and i think i said at the start you have to go and see this film if you're interested in, in cinema whether it's perfect or not. you have to go and see it. it's an extraordinary bit of
0: filmmaking and if possible you have to see it in imax yeah i would i would totally agree with that. I mean there are shots in the film that I was watching, slack jawed of like Spitfires doing flyovers off the beach with the Dunkirk town in the background where you have this full giant square frame filled top to bottom and I was watching them thinking this: if you see this film in a cinema in the sort of letterboxed uh, I guess regular aspect ratio digital, you're getting a, diff- a fundamentally different film, you're not getting that kind of panoramic vision that I think he has Mm. for the film maybe it's not necessarily going to fundamentally change the experience of watching it but I totally agree like on on that kind of in the moment reaction to it it's things like I don't think I've ever heard gunshots like you hear in this film I mean like he's clearly worked hours and hours if not days if not weeks achieving this idea of like we don't want movie gunshots press a button and a sound effect comes out that sounds like a gunshot that someone has like you know some foley artist has like captured but it is actually like wow well, i'm being shot at you know the, the, this it's, how it's like if you're in a war and you're and, and there are guns going off he makes you think this is the kind of the feeling of war is there a wilhelm scream in this not that I know of. Oh, no, it's That's the, why you only gave it a three in retrospect.
1: Yeah, exactly.
3: No, okay, so you a five at the time for you. What what did you love it, about it while you were watching it?
1: It's just so immersive, and the sound design's a big part of that. I think he is really trying to, as accurately and realistically as possible, create this this feeling of this is what it's like to be in war. I mean, you are constantly bombarded with sounds and images that place you right in the heart of the action particularly the uh, the sort of infamous siren screech of the uh, german stookers is almost deafening i mean it's so it's cranked up to such a volume
0: but i thought it was like being in a laundrette where all the washing machines are on and you're just sort of trapped in there. I mean, that that maybe sounds a bit negative, but like it was just such a kind of like. Because I guess it's a very analogy rattle. Right. There's this sound that you get in, that's become associated with Nolan's films, which is this kind of like. Mm. Do you know Do you know the sound I mean? I'm not, no. You get it in a lot of like big blockbusters. Kind, it's of like, it's drop. kind of sub It's this kind of sub bass drop. I think. You get it in so many films now, and it's it's so gratifying to not hear it in this film. And he's right. actually thought we're not going to do movie sounds we're doing like
1: this is an interesting thing because I think Nolan has created a very distinctive style in his films that has been replicated so much by so many directors in Hollywood now, and audiences are kind of conditioned to expect these sort of sounds to expect a film to look a certain way at this scale at this kind of big top end blockbuster scale. And Nolan does something actually a little bit different here. It's quite um, an old-school film in a lot of ways in, in the in the sort of level of craft that he's bringing to it. But what he does with it feels very, very different to modern blockbusters.
3: Another film which features a famous episode on a beach from World War II is Saving Private Ryan. And you're talking about immediacy and, and, and being immersive and that opening sequence of the landings in that film, I think was the last time I can remember feeling as slack-jawed and as involved in something of this kind. That Spielberg did without music. It was interesting for somebody who wanted to achieve immediacy and wanted to achieve realism that Nolan went for such a wall-to-wall kind of oral landscape from hands Zimmer. It's like a rolling barrage almost from the start of the film to
0: the end. I guess, like... Nolan sees himself as much a conductor as a director. Him and Hans Zimmer, I think some of the best stuff in in Interstellar was that kind of merging of visuals and music and and I think he's got a real sense of, of musicality as a director. I think one of my th- one of my things about Nolan is that I almost think he's sort of trapped in between this this world of wanting to be a great artist and wanting to be someone who delivers a thing that people like. There's a certain compromise made. Mm. Like, you know, a film can only be good if people go and see it attitude, which is laudable, I think, but at the same time I, I kind of there, there's a shot in this film. it's the penultimate shot of the film, mm. which is I think one of the best things he's ever filmed and it's almost slightly metaphysical and surreal this this very kind of strange moment it's the one shot in the film that he actually holds for a little bit longer. If mm-hmm. I had one issue with this film is that the time, this time concept shackles him into, like, doing everything really quickly, moving between parallel stories, shifting right. here, shifting there, whereas I almost want him to make slightly slower films. <laughs> I mean, he, he he gives us such beautiful images, but he kind of flashes them in front of her eyes and takes them away again.
1: This is one of the reasons I'm excited to go back and revisit it because I think I'll appreciate some of that stuff a bit more and you're so caught up in the film in the moment because that's the pacing of it and you have this Uh, relentless tick-tocking which underscores everything underscores the sound design and and Hans Zimmer's score I guess it kind of would be considered part of the score but and yeah you really don't have a moment to pause or breathe or take it in I mean I suppose that is part of what the reality of being in that situation must Mm. have been like
3: it's a deeply chaotic film I thought was quite brave in the way that it's almost entirely jettisoned what you'd normally expect of a a, a kind of narrative arc or or even dialogue for vast sections it's it's almost like a, a scrapbook or a collage of, of scenes and images from this week or day or hour kind of thrown together and you, you you just kind of take it almost at face value and then afterwards try and put it together in your head. I did, like I think both of you, I did have slight issues with it but I really can't reiterate this enough. I, I think it's can't remember seeing a film that surprised me as much as, as this one. It has to be seen. My kind of minor issue with it is that the key event of Dunkirk, the actual evacuation by flotilla, early on Kenneth Branagh says we need a miracle and it's kind of built up... That the that this impossibility of getting this almost half a million men off the beach before the enemy uh, arrives or, or finishes them off. We never really get that money shot of the, the flotilla, but we get so much else that it, it's maybe a little bit churlish to say, well, hang on, what about that?
1: You get a sense of scale in this film, but it's more of the production than the actual events that the film's depicting. Um, and actually the, the point at which the, the three narrative threads overlap that sort of pivotal central event is happening slightly further out to sea. So you're not really on the beach in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and the beach is where all of this happened. And at a point of comparison uh, would be Joe Wright's Atonement, which has an amazing sort of five-minute single-take sequence about midway through. In which uh, James McAvoy's soldier is walking along the beach, and you see the the chaos and also the order of what was happening at the, at the time, and people who are just sat around, very bored, kind of waiting for waiting to be rescued, and that sequence conveys the the event maybe a little bit truer to how it was than really Dunkirk, yeah. In Do terms of I, just because I've read up so much about Dunkirk and, mm-hmm. and read various stories, and I think it's admirable that he decided not to make this from a single perspective. A lot of historical accounts do say that there are so many different stories and so many which uh, are yet to be told, you know, because they've been lost or, or whatever. But that's one thing I'd say is you, I didn't really get a sense of like the full scale of what it meant to be among say 400,000 men stranded on a beach.
0: At the same time, I kind of think, well, if you do want that kind of heavy exposition, mm. and you want it to be more of a kind of military history, I mean you do have the sort of the nineteen fifties Dunkirk I'm sure will be readily available now to revisit, which is the sort of dull episodic, very conventional, like we're gonna tell a story about this thing that happened and right. we're gonna sort of build up some sentimental characters and
1: I mean I wasn't necessarily uh, craving that. I'm just it's more of an observation of that's not what the film is. Right. It's clearly not what he's trying to do or what he's set out to do. Yeah. So don't expect that going into it.
3: It is a step away from the traditional ab- approach to filming something like this, and a wildly successful one, I think, in most parts. Do you, you stand by those
0: the scores? Five, five, three. Adam.
1: Yeah.
3: Okay.
0: David, what would you? I would probably say slightly different. Five, four, four. I think I lost a bit of interest where, where, as with all of his films, the kind of the cross-cutting mayhem starts. Mm. He's forcing you to sort of think about where you are, who you're with, what you're watching, what's happening and I didn't quite feel that come across. Right, It's so beautifully laid out and and then you get this kind of cacophony at the end. Even Hans Zimmer's score goes into this weird kind of almost drum and bass segue. (laughs) Um, But I absolutely, in fact I've thought about it a lot and there are some little stories, some little kind of subplots involving smaller characters that I want to revisit and look at again in more detail I think mm. so there's a little subplot involving a character played by Barry Egoan, I think his name is oh, yeah. Egoin I, I'm not sure I'd pronounce his surname but he's a, this kind of up-and-coming young actor and there's a section where he uh jumps on one of these pleasure boats uh just as it's kind of leaving the dock to, go- to head to Dunkirk and it's a it's a bit of a, a reaction on his part and he doesn't really know where he's going or why and that subplot actually ends up being quite interesting Mm. and and quite sort of, it deals with quite a sort of thorny, ethical, conceptual subject, which, you know, almost like a kind of paths of glory idea of like, you know, what goes on in the theatre of war, you know. Well,
3: it's interesting because here my scores are five anticipation, four at the time, and then absolutely five or higher. I'm desperate to go back and see it again. Not seen anything like it for, uh, I don't know when. But the one, apart from my little quibble about the where's the flotilla, Chris, uh, the other thing I thought was that it is such an extraordinary impressionistic collage. It is so immediate. Uh, there are so many startling sights, so much confusion it is so immersive. The one bit where I felt it didn't quite perhaps carry the same punch was when he does include narrative like the section in the boat that didn't work quite as well for me. But you know what? I'm with you when you say
0: let's not quibble about the negatives because it is an amazing film and everyone should go and see it. I mean, I know we've said this before, but the the concept of scores for a film like mm. this seem slightly like, ab- more abstract let's because when you're dealing with someone like Christopher Nolan who is working at that slightly higher level than than most other people, a four for Christopher Nolan film is slightly... Higher than a four for something. Gotcha. That, that, you know. Should we let's bin the scores for Dunkirk and instead
3: give scores for Harry Styles' performance, anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect. Adam. Yeah, that's a good oh, idea.
1: Oh, fives across the board. I think really. Yeah, he's yeah. he's great. I mean, the the performances we should say I think are strong throughout. Mm. Um, Kenneth Branagh does uh, some good work with some pretty corny dialogue. film Whitehead. Ditto Mark Rylance. Ditto Mark Rylance. Uh, Fionn Whitehead, who barely has anything to say, is amazing. I mean, just the camera—that's the one character uh, where the camera holds a bit more on his face, and he's very emotive, very expressive.
0: Yeah, I t- he's got this kind of f- almost sort of feral presence. Are you allowed to say feral? Is that still a, a thing? That- what, why would you not? Oh, right. I thought I thought that was a kind of like frowned upon term. Anyway, he's got this kind of presence, and it definitely it makes you think of like these war films like Come and See and so Ivan's that's Childhood That's Feral, not Feral like Will Feral No, not nothing to do with Feral okay. <laughs> Yeah, he he kind of makes you think back to these films like Ivan's Childhood and Come and See which are sort of movies where you're kind of experiencing war with these young kids who don't quite understand what's happening It's super expressive and he just does a lot with, with nothing
1: If I may, just a final word on talking about the kind of arbitrary nature of applying scores to a film like this I left the cinema feeling like actually questioning what a film at this level is. And I think it is quite remarkable that Nolan is making something, this commercial, given the subject matter, that contains so little dialogue, so little in the way of exposition and, and really story narrative. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that has to be applauded. It, hmm. It's
0: a subversive blockbuster, I think. Wow. Is that, is, that, is that too much? No. No? Oh, OK. There you
3: go, Dunkirk. So, next up, after this drum break, we're talking about City of Ghosts. City of Ghosts. Should I mention this is not the City of Ghosts? The 2003 Matt Dillon, Natasha McKellen, uh, James Kahn? I wasn't aware
1: that there was I, a film called that. Did you I know think this? people have forgotten about that film Right.
3: So, I, would, I don't need to mention to you, listener, that this, I, this is very different. This is a documentary from uh, Matthew Heinemann who had the Oscar-nominated cartel land about Mexican drug wars. And it follows the citizen journalist collective Raqqa is being slaughtered silently as they basically fight to expose human rights violations by ISIS, filming within Raqqa under ISIS rule, and their increasingly deadly media war with the fundamentalist group. Mm. David, mm. it's an incredible subject, and the people, both inside and outside the city, the, the feature in this film... Are uh, an extraordinary people as well, does
0: the film do the subject justice? I would say so I mean it's like you know I think that this is a kind of a film that wants to shake you by the lapels a bit and you know alert you to this horrendous thing that's happening that is that you know we're not seeing in the in the media and there's not really kind of blanket media coverage. I think it's a very interesting film to talk about with relation to Dunkirk because I think that Sorry to rattle on more about Dunkirk, but watching this, the concept of this is about the irrepressible nature of of journalism and sort of democratization of technology. Everyone has a smartphone. So in essence, everyone can document what's happening around them to some respect. Just a normal person filming things happening in the streets, video reportage, it's very similar to what Christopher Nolan's doing in a way, or emulating on this far, far grander scale. I think, mm. but you know, it's trying to get that immediacy. And yeah, I mean, this this film is is um, you're with these heroic journalists. The film sort of shows the takeover of Raqqa after protests against the Assad regime. And how these guys with their black flags and balaclavas kind of roll into town and just sort of take advantage of of, of a moment—it's almost like a kind of mini coup pretty much the first thing they do is round up rebels in the town square and just execute them in front of yeah, everyone. It's worth mentioning there's some very harrowing footage, a very explicit footage of
3: the kind of atrocities that had been committed there in this film. Adam, what was your take on it?
1: Yeah, it's, it's incredibly tough to watch but I think vital because it is the sort of stuff you just don't see in the media and in the same way that ISIS uh, and other groups have uh, exploited and and used social media and the internet to kind of get their their hate message across. These journalists are doing the same thing and they've managed to build up an amazing following from nothing over the course of a few years and I don't think you would have been able to do that. I mean there are certain parallels with other oppressive regimes that have come up you know going back for centuries it kind of makes you think what would I do in that situation? Mm. Would I be powerless to kind of help and, and I'm actually just currently watching The Handmaid's Tale. Have anyone seen that? Me too. And
3: it's funny because that's a science fiction or a fantasy in which we're kind of titillated by the notion of living under such an oppressive regime, but it's actually happening to people and indeed far worse than that right now.
1: Yeah, and we think we like to think we're sort of cocooned from that in our in our sort of cozy Western world. But actually we're we're not, I think. And and you know, these kind of basic human rights and freedom of speech and stuff like that. They're so precious and uh, so kind of fragile as well and vulnerable. And this shows what happens when uh, a very kind of powerful, single-minded group takes advantage of that. Mm. That's one of the, I
3: think, the key themes about this. Another one that comes into play increasingly is, as the documentary goes on, by dint of the fact that they ha- the, the journalists have to flee from Raqqa, a lot of them do, some remain within the city, and eventually end up in Germany seeking some kind of safety is the whole context of the refugee crisis and immigration. I had a slight issue here with what I think is a slightly ingenuous bit of, oh, sorry, disingenuous bit of editing by Heinemann, where he juxtaposes an anti-immigration demonstration with a pro-Syrian assembly that the, the journalists are part of. And he basically
0: cuts them to make it look like one is a response to the other. As far as I can tell, they're actually separate events. Must say, I didn't notice that myself. But that, w- if if that were true, I mean, that seems to be like Heinemann embracing the very same kind of propaganda tactics <laughs> that he is supposedly abhorring. Now I'm nervous because I might be doing him a huge disservice. But it's
3: interesting that you never see the two demonstrations actually kind of in the same frame. Mm. You see a, a shot of a police dog. You see a, one demonstration. And you cut to another one. I'm not familiar enough with Berlin's kind of architecture to know if they are happening in the same square but i i definitely thought he's cut those two together
1: i think that's a valid observation and it certainly raises an ethical question uh on his part as a documentary maker but you know i I suppose he's trying to get his message across Mm. and you know one way to do it is to is to kind of juxtapose these things in a very direct way
3: Well, once again then this is a film which is very much unlike anything else i can remember uh watching adam what were your can we give schools to something like
1: this it's hard to certainly score it on a kind of enjoyment level, yeah. um, because it is such a harrowing watch, but I think it's is, it is a vital film, as i say and um if I w- if I'm going to give it scores, which I, you know we should do, I'd say a sort of three in anticipation and then fours for enjoyment and in retrospect. Mm. Um, if you get a chance to to see this film it's it's a sort of must watch.
3: It it was on in Sh- uh, at Sheffield recently David mm-hmm. uh, where it won the grand jury prize.
0: Uh,
1: where is it available
0: now? I believe it's going to be on in cinemas this Friday in the UK. It it does make for a sort of strange companion piece to Dunkirk I guess. Um I mean I think one of the things that I felt about watching it was essentially it is all about the need for a free press and you 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 can't help watch this and watch what's happening in, in the US at the moment with the, the president directly attacking the press and the media and maybe speculate that, is this a vision of further down the line? I mean, I don't know, but it, it, it makes you kind of question that. But yeah, I would give same, same scores. It's like lower expectation, but then was, yeah, four and four. Because, I mean, enjoyment for a film like this is probably, yeah, it doesn't really come into it.
3: The Remarkable City of Ghosts, which is out, uh, at the end of this week, and it was bought by Amazon, so I'm pretty sure it'll be on a VOD platform shortly.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a
1: thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So,
0: Give it a try at mintmobile.com switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact...
3: Little White Lies Film Club, which is the bit where we watch a classic film, and hopefully you do too, and we'll have a little bit of a reappraisal of it. What with the release of Dunkirk, we've chosen a war film, kind of a war film, a matter of life and death, certainly a film which has war as its backdrop, uh, which was released, indeed, just a year after the Second World War ended in 1946. It stars David Niven as a British wartime aviator who cheats death... And then must argue for his life before a celestial court. Uh, it's kind of Heaven Can Wait meets Wizard of Oz. I felt. But let's hear what listeners thought because I don't think we've had as big a reaction to a film club movie so far as we did for this one. No, did we? I don't think so.
1: So at Samson Leisure on Twitter says it's one of the best films ever made. Made me want a camera obscura to spy on the townsfolk.
3: It's healthy. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Richard Johnson says, it's interesting that Kim Hunter, who plays June in this film, also had a key role in Planet of the Apes. Was that an intentional link to the last podcast? Was that an intentional link, dude? Yes. Okay. Was it really? No. Okay. <laughs> David Niven, by the way, I, I wasn't aware of this, but he actually took part in the uh, D-Day
0: landings.
1: Did oh, that, you yeah. know
3: that?
0: He came back from Hollywood to to do his bit. Anyway, sorry, right. More, more Oh comments. yeah, Paul Brand. It's like the ambition of the British film industry was all used up in one film. Uh, only a few other Powell and Pressburger films ever came close to matching it in its scale. Wow, is that fair? No. Okay. Which, by the way, Powell and Pressburger—the I mean, Red Shoes—I'm familiar with. What else? If you saw this and loved it, what what else should you well, seek out? You know, they had this, and they had Red Shoes, and they had The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, mm. and Black Narcissus. The, black, n- black Narcissus. And my actual personal favourite of their films is another one of their kind of slightly whimsical war films, The Canterbury Tale, um, where it's kind of before something, is going to, something big is happening in the British campaign and you've got all these soldiers in Can- Canterbury doing, you know, walking the pilgrim's way, wondering what's going to happen to their lives. And it is an extraordinary, extraordinary film. Sorry, a little kind of segue there. No, no. It's, on it's, it's my love of Pressburger. But yeah, this is, this is very expressionist fantasia, more like one of their kind of red shoes or tales from Hoffman, like very, very over the top. Right. Lots of amazing special effects. Ben Nash says, why was it called Stairway to Heaven
3: in the States? The answer being that the American lawyers felt no film with death in the title would succeed over there. Pressburger argued that death takes a holiday had been a substantial here. The lawyers said, though, that the title made it explicit, because death was taking a holiday, that no one would actually pass away, whereas a matter of life and death was ambiguous. <laughs> Bless. And
2: well,
0: you also get the amazing shot of the, uh, there is an, the
3: a
2: stairway. literal
0: yeah. stairway to heaven.
1: Yeah. Uh, Sean J. Skinner uh, says it's in his top 10 of all time, showed it to his partner recently, uh, and she said she'd never seen or heard of it and was blown away. John Sharp finally says it has what may very well be the best beginning to any film ever.
3: Yeah, it's an extraordinary opening and extraordinarily emotional as well. Was, and what that must have been like in nineteen forty six to witness at a cinema.
1: Yeah, I was I was watching this. I've seen this film a few times before, but re um, rewatching it especially in anticipation of dunkirk and everything else thinking about world war Two and watching this film thinking what must have been like in 1946 watching this for a british audience who were you know coming out of the of the end of the war and um yeah amazing opening scene where uh, david niven is on his lancaster bomber and mm. it's effectively going down and uh is on radio communication with uh, an american what would you describe? What's the role well, radio operator? Theme, radio but what I was trying
3: to work out what in, in what lay the emotional power of that scene beyond the fact that obviously it's a, a very dramatic moment. But I think that whole opening, the way that it begins with this universal canvas, and slowly zooms in past all the supernovas, etc., onto the planet Earth, and then drifts through all the radio static and chatter, and he's the first human person you. That you actually, the first person that you see, and as such, almost takes on an everyman identity. It's a remarkable bit of filmmaking. I mean, it
0: is a really amazing moment in that it's that kind of, I guess, it's a very sort of rare moment in that it's a guy who knows he's about to die in full consciousness and he can be, and he's kind of, you know, can articulate his feelings about that and, you know, Make you know, make his piece uh, even like uh, to an extent, and then the way that Niven sort of, uh, you know, it's quite, the- it's almost like he's giving a you know a final curtain performance or you know, but um, to June down the line, and then the way he sort of just, you know, cheerio, and then just jumps out of the, the, the out of the fusillade, actually fusillade the right sort fuselage. of fuselage, fuselage.
3: Mm. It's probably fair to say that the rest of the film it does become more conventional as it goes on, although there are still surprises. There's that bit where he's going under with the anaesthesia and, and you see this, this the veined eyelid closing over the lens. Wow. Um, but I thought it was really interesting the fact that uh, when it gets to the trial at the end, it seems almost an obvious notion to Paul and Pressburger that a jury made up of citizens from the history of the world are going to be not well disposed to the English which in 1946, I would have expected very much the opposite kind of appraisal of
1: Britain's standing. Mm, it's quite it's quite sort of ahead of its time in that mm. in that way of thinking as well. And talk about the emotional impact it would have had. I'd say it's more of a philosophical film than a religious one. But showing um, initially the, the sort of gates to heaven and all these soldiers coming through must have been quite a kind of heartwarming thing for audi- audiences to see at the time. Um, but then, as you say, later on, it then doesn't contradict itself, but it presents this idea that actually prior British military exploits um, haven't necessarily put us in, in, in good stead with other other nations. And, yeah. Yeah. Very nicely put.
3: All right, well, that was a matter of life and death. And speaking, sadly, of death, of course, George A. Romero uh, passed away after a short battle with lung cancer uh, last week. And next week's film club is going to be an homage to one of his Works Uh, Romero, who effectively ushered in a whole new genre when, in 1968, he dropped this on American cinema-going folk.
1: Night of the living dead. The dead who live on living flesh. The dead
3: whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose
0: bodies are the only food for these...
2: Ungodly creatures! <laughs>
3: Night of the Living Dead. Fantastic stuff. That's the trailer from Night of the Living Dead, which was the first first zombie film. As we know them, why
0: was he so important? He is known for sort of, I guess, coining the what we now see as like the kind of zombie movie. One of the other more important things is that horror movies used to be like ham actors with fake fangs and Dracula outfits in in haunted houses with uh, with smoke machines. And he actually was making a film that was like it, it. It brought a sense of realism to. It was horror in the real world. Night of the Living Dead. Set in Pittsburgh, and all of a sudden, the, this couple—you know—they're visiting a cemetery, and then, bang! There's a zombie just walking through, and you're—you're—you're you're, you're in it. It's happening. It's happening in the real world. Uh, I and mean, in that film, in particular, he's also known for casting a black lead for, for no other reason than he was the best actor. The politics of the film now seem so much richer, I guess, uh, in the. It feels like it's a film about um, persecution, uh, if, you, if you see it now, I guess.
3: So from the original trilogy, you had Night of the Living Dead, the old black and white starts off in the cemetery. Then you've got the shopping mall one. Dawn. Dawn of the Living Dead. And then the third one is the one that we are... Can I, can I suggest, if you want to go back and watch all three, and I'm going to try and do that, then, then please do, but make sure you watch the third one, Adam, 1985's Day of the Dead. What's so special about that one?
1: Yeah, that's uh, the one which is sort of set in a military bunker and it's probably the most uh, explicit, gory one of the three. It's actually the first film of his that I ever saw. And so it'd be fascinating to revisit now because I've not seen it in many years. But um, yeah, it's probably not the, the best known of, of those original ones, but I think it's possibly the most interesting um, visually and just kind of from a kind of craft point of view.
0: I think it's one of those films that you think, oh, it's zombies. There's a, what can you do with zombies? And you see this film and it's like, oh, wow, you can do that with zombies. Right. I mean, it is like proper sort of philosophy, politics. I mean, we'll go into it next week. So much of the appreciation about George Romero has been about
3: how he used the zombie flick as a vehicle to bring in other, other
0: themes. Uh, a, a lot of people also commenting what a splendid bloke he was. Oh, I- God, that's, a, that's one of the things that I've noticed that people are posting images of him and I don't think I've seen a single image of him not smightly like, giving <laughs> this very big toothy grin he you know from what i hear he was just an absolute doll
1: right we've actually um this week uh just published a previously un unread and seen uh, interview with George a. Romero which one of our contributors did a few years back while he was in town at the uh, London Film Festival so do yeah do have a read of that because it's really fascinating what he has to say about um his experiences in Hollywood especially and um, his kind of view I guess on, on filmmaking.
3: Interestingly uh, on the BFI website they've got a, his top ten movies he did a top ten movies thing for them a, a while back and do you know what his number one is?
1: Of his own movies? or No no just movies. his
3: favourite movies ever he frames the whole thing as I'm going to hell these are the ten movies I'm allowed to take with me and it, it's it's delightfully told but his number one is The Tales of Hoffman, oh. Powell and Pressburger. This is one notch out of alphabetical order. He says, I decided to give it the status of last position because it's my favourite film of all time and mo- the movie that made me want to make movies. So how about that? Should also, by the way, if we're talking about people who we've sadly lost this last week, uh, salute Martin Landau, the, uh, the American actor. Uh, Patton Oswalt pointing out that when George A. Romero was 19, he worked as a page boy on... North by
0: Northwest, which of course was from which featured Martin Landau to such chilling effect. I never saw him in, in Mission Impossible. I've I've got to admit, but as most people of my generation probably would know and love him from uh, Edward. Oh right, yeah. For which he won an Oscar, hmm. and I think someone had mentioned that it was maybe the only time someone had won an Oscar for playing another, and, and only time a male had won an Oscar for playing another actor. But maybe if avid listeners. No, otherwise they can get in touch please
3: do all right well the the way to get in touch with us as i mentioned before truth and movies at tcolondon.com twitter is at lw lies or there's the little white lies facebook page and one day there will be a, a special podcast home on the little white lies website but some terrific movies this week do hope you enjoy them david any final thoughts? No, nothing
0: from me. Just, uh, I guess I'm going to sort of be that boring person and say, if you do go and see Dunkirk, maybe try and see it the way that it was intended on the IMAX, on the IMAX 70mm.
3: All right, yeah, I think it's jumbo worth it. vision. Yeah, nice one. Uh, that has been Truth and Movies. We'll see you again next week. In the meantime, it's a Seven Digital production.